Welcome back to Digital Health 101. Today we're talking to Nikos Kiewalski, and the problem we're addressing today is the question of interoperability and data integration, the ability to track and send and share data across multiple electronic health records, which has been a real problem and something that you're going to be hearing a lot about. So let's hear from Nikos Kiewalski from Redox. He's a total expert in this and really good at explaining it. Super excited to have Nikos Kivaski on my show today. This is going to be so much fun. And Nico, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super pumped to be here. It is going to be great because we're going to talk about some really cool stuff that you know a lot about, which is basically introducing the concept of and understanding the concept of interoperability. So before we get to that, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you can talk about this topic. <laughs> yeah, happy to. So first off, I live out here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where I ride my bike frequently. But getting to the topic of the episode, um, I got started in healthcare working at Epic. So I uh, helped to implement the electronic health record all over the country. And it was really there where I was first introduced to the topic of interoperability. And I ended up leaving Epic in 2013. So gosh, seven years ago now and started Redox at that point. And Redox was really a company focused on the interoperability space, focused on a, a sliver of it, which you know we're going to get into kind of the different pieces of it. So I've been really obsessed with interoperability for the past seven years now as we've grown Redox from you know just three people founding it to we have about 150 employees now. We've raised about 100 million in capital and have worked with about 1300 health systems across the United States. So have a pretty big footprint out there exchanging patient data, about 10 million patient records across that network every single day. So yeah, we live, sleep and breathe interoperability. Which kind of points to the fact that if you have that kind of stratospheric growth, you're actually solving a problem we have. So let's get understand exactly what this problem is and how it manifests itself. Okay, so let's start. What is interoperability and why does it matter? <laughs> Yeah, I think that the easiest way to think of it, we're all patients, right? And so we've all interacted in different healthcare settings and you know, you're an orthopedic surgeon. So a patient might go from their primary care provider and then they might see you in your clinic and then see you at the at the operating room. And they assume that because you're all part of the healthcare delivery team, that you can see everyone else's data, that the data that your primary care provider has about the patient, which includes their med lists and histories and allergies and past diagnoses, that your surgeon can also see that. And that, you know, when they get out of surgery and they go to physical therapy, that the physical therapist can see it. But the sad reality of the world is that each of those providers are probably using systems that don't talk to each other. And this is just because of how healthcare technology grew up over the years and that Way back in the day, back before computers and the internet, providers used clipboards and they had paper on their clipboards and they wrote down their notes. And then once computers started coming into the picture, late 70s, early 80s, of course, this is pre-internet, they basically took what was in the clipboard and put it in the computer and made fields in the computer that mimicked the clipboard. And that turned into the electronic health record. And so they took the notes that the doctors were taking in the in those health records, streamline the billing process so they can more easily get claims. But this was all pre-internet. And once the internet started coming online and, and we started living in this digital world of interconnectivity, we just assumed that healthcare technology also came along. But the sad reality is that most electronic health records were never designed to talk to the internet. They were built to live within the four walls of the healthcare organization that they supported. And interoperability has now become this, this problem in healthcare because uh, that data, first off, it's not stored in a way that is the same across different organizations. And then second of all, it's hard. There's not like a, a way for that data to move from one organization to another. 
And that kind of creates the landscape that interoperability lives in. So I would say that there's there's probably what I've just described is probably the most traditional way of thinking about interoperability. How does data follow a patient from different care settings? But there's also a couple a couple other actually before you go there, because this word interoperability is confusing because what you've talked to me so far about is data sharing. But it's the operability part. The inter why not wasn't it called intersharing? Why isn't it called data sharing? Why is yeah. it called interoperability? Well, interoperability, it's a technical term that you know, comes from outside of healthcare. And the, the literal meaning of it is when two systems can share data with each other. So when your email client gets emails from your email server, that is interoperability. And so just in the general software sense, it's talking about data sharing between two systems. And so when we have two different EHRs, one that the surgeon uses and one that the primary care provider uses, the technical term for sharing data between those is interoperability. Of course, there's the technical aspects of it, but there's also a lot of kind of governance aspects of it too, right? Like why do those two providers actually want to share data? What are the economics involved in that? And, you know, so you get into things beyond the technical arrangements into the economics, the incentives involved around why it makes sense to share data. So there's a lot to unpack in that space because, you know, it's not only it's not only the technical aspects of it. Right. Because it's not only just the data sharing, but the fact that the software on the other end can't operate without that information. So it's it's a way to share data so that it's not just accessing the data, but using the data. The operability part, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that without that data sharing, the software on the other side can't deliver the product it's designed to deliver without the data's input. Yeah. It either can't deliver that, that product or... The provider has to has to dig for more information, right? Like when when you go and see a specialist and they ask you what meds you're on, and as a patient you're like, well, don't don't you know? Haven't you talked to? Right. Isn't it in my record? <laughs> like right. my other doctor gave me these meds, so they have to go digging for more information, or they might you know do another blood test or kind of repetitive type activities, which all contributes to the inefficiencies that that we see in our healthcare system. So in a world where you might imagine seamless interoperability, where all of the data was shared with everybody who needed to know, then we could imagine a world where we have a lot more efficiencies in delivering care with less redundancy and also just with more data around what's going on with the patient, potentially providers would be able to understand the bigger picture of a patient's circumstances and potentially provide more effective healthcare as well. So we'll definitely get into where interoperability has been extremely helpful. Let's get a little bit back. I interrupted you at a moment. You were about to give us three areas. I think it was uh, three other areas of ways to think about interoperability. So let's get, let's get back to that. Yeah, yeah. So the first one, and I would say kind of the, the highest level interoperability is what I described, having data follow a patient between different care settings. Um, the next level down is within a care setting. Providers use a lot of different technologies. So if you think about your primary care doctor, the person sitting at the front desk that does the schedule and registration, they might be using a different system than the doctor and the nurse who are actually typing into an electronic health record. So they might have a practice management system up front. And those two systems need to talk to each other because they need to sync up on what the schedule looks like, who the patient is to have a common understanding of the patient. And then, you know, they might have a lab system or a radiology system like a PAX or other sorts of technologies that are used in that, in that single healthcare, you know, practice. And so that type of interoperability, we call it integration. So there's interoperability at the highest level, which I've been calling enterprise interoperability between two enterprises. You go a level down within one enterprise and you have integration between all the systems that are used within that healthcare organization is kind of the second group. And that's an area that has been growing a lot over the past few years because 
new technologies have been sprouting up that allow providers to do different things based on the types of patients they're seeing, based on you know the care settings, you know things like telehealth or population health management, remote patient monitoring, which is where you get into like tracking patients outside of the four walls of the, the care setting. All of that technology needs to needs the raw data of who the patient is and what's going on with them, which is typically kept in the electronic health record. So that's kind of the second level of interoperability is this integration level. And then I would say the third level is probably the one that's most emerging right now, which is actually getting the data to the patient themselves. Because the, the one commonality in, in all of this is the patient, you know, patients moving between care settings, the patients within a care setting. There's a movement right now to say, how can we get the patient out of these enterprise systems and into the hands of a patient? where the patient can actually decide what they want to do with that data. They can show it to their next provider. They can use different applications to display it in different ways to better understand what's going on with their own healthcare. You know, things like medication management, just transparency or about what their, what their care plan that the provider gave them and how that translates into, you know, what their diagnosis is to drive their behavior in such a way that hopefully they can reach better outcomes. So that's the third layer is actually what, what we call patient authorized data access, because giving the data to the patient isn't good enough because data is just numbers and, and letters, right? But you need an application to actually turn that data into information that's actionable for the patient. So patient authorized data exchange is really about the patient authorizing data to move from one application, like an electronic health record into an application that may be on their phone that they want to use to display that information, to graph it, to compare it against other patients that are in that application. There's endless uses of that, but I think that's the that space as it emerges is really exciting because not only could it potentially drive patient behavior at that patient level, but it could also start to dismantle what we think of as a typical healthcare delivery situation with hospitals and doctors, because it puts the patient in control of where they want to receive care. They can use telehealth services. They can use concierge medicine. It's really driving a, a consumer-driven healthcare experience, which may change how, how healthcare is delivered in the coming years. But that one, I would say, is kind of the cutting edge piece because as an industry, we have regulations now that mandate that we need to give data to patients in the form of an API uh, so developers can make applications on it. But those applications don't necessarily exist yet. We don't know what applications will come about that will start to engage patients. But the government and these regulations have really kind of, it's a, if we build it, they will come sort of regulation of, if we create the landscape such that this data is available to patients, the entrepreneurs will come and build applications that will start to engage those patients. And so that's a bet that we haven't seen playing out yet, but it's something that I'm super excited for the next you know five years in healthcare to see what technologies actually emerge. Leave that. Definitely cover a lot of ground there. This last one is one of particular interest to me. I once gave a lecture, Exponential Medicine, where I talked about this transition of the physician from being in charge to going to more of a coaching role mm -hmm. as the patient has their data, then has questions about various options that arise from that data, various apps that they interface with, and they need somebody to help them navigate that. Yeah. As opposed to the physician being in charge of all the data, making decisions on behalf of the patient. It's a complete flip-flop of the relationship between physicians and patients. And I'm not entirely sure we as a, as a society are ready for it. And I think that uh, I do believe that the government opening those doors will enable those discussions to be had and those opportunities to, to happen. And... Um, you know, we'd be looking at a generational change, right? They're, the Gen Z, or there's a gen coming up that's that has the entire world has been influenced by artificial intelligence that shows them things they're interested in that 
curates their music lists and they're not going to accept an environment that they have no control over. I, so there's yeah. going to be a, I think your point of being patient driven, I think you're absolutely right. We live in the information age, right? And so that's all about having all of the information at your fingertips and any consumer out there right now has more information accessible to them than world leaders and the philosophers of even a generation ago. I would love to flip it back around to you as a doctor who's been providing medicine for, for years in more of a traditional setting of, you know, when, when, when a patient walks in and you look at their x-ray and say, you need a knee replacement, that's you saying, based on all of your expertise and training, that the patient needs that surgery. In the future, it might be that the patient comes to you and says, I need a knee replacement and, and you're the guy who I want to do it. How, how does that make you feel as a, a provider? Because it's really your world that's going to be flipped around there, right? Yeah, you know, I think that for some people, it will take away the uh, the drive to be a physician. That is what we deliver is that is the ability to make the decision help. I think there'll be a transition in what expectations are on both the physician side and the patient side. I personally don't have much of an issue with that. I am moving into robotics program. We just are starting a robotics program. The fact using robotics takes all the um, art, a lot of the art out of surgery. But I do know that we will deliver a better product, better outcome uh, to the patient, be very consistent. That said, there are still some elements of that procedure that I run. Once I hit, I made the software selects the ideal situation and then goes ahead and executes it. And I'm running three robots in four rooms without ever touching a patient. That's a different planet, right? Yeah. It's a different yeah. world. I may wind up doing something else. I may wind up being primarily the one, and then maybe fewer of us, looking at how to fix problems that don't work out well, because not every procedure is going to work out well. Infections, yeah. wound healing problems, basically moving up the chain of the complexity. But let's get back to something, because even if I had that patient show up, and I am still, we are still today, those of us listening, trying to figure out how to get these things to work together at all. Because when you talked about interoperability and, and exchange of data, there's two parts of that. One is reading and one is writing. Reading, companies like Epic and Cerner make it relatively easy, but writing or putting data back into the health record is exceedingly hard for good reason. And I want to talk a little bit about this implementation of an interoperability solution. It sounds super easy. Plug those two together. And by the way, I want you to just say what an API is, but how do you connect these two things? And then the data in one side may be in Latin and the other side is Greek. And I can put a bunch of Latin into a Greek context and it won't work. So it's not as simple as just saying, hey, you two talk to each other. Let's let's get into the nuts and bolts of complexity of interoperability that is still that that's why it's still a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in diving down this, we're gonna be talking about the technical natures of the problem, but also the the governance natures. And I think that's uh, when you described it's difficult to get data into an EHR. That's really a governance issue. So if we think back on the different layers of interoperability I talked about within one organization, if your practice management system, your scheduling and registration system needs to talk to your EHR, that needs to be a bi-directional integration because the practice management system will register a patient, will create a new patient in the system and say, okay, we have uh, this new patient, their number is one, two, three, and that data needs to flow into that electronic health record. So we're going to update the electronic health record with a new patient, patient one, two, three, and uh, add them in there. Then the provider sees the patient and that information needs to flow back to the practice management system to update that. So it needs to go both ways. And in the integration space, we've had bi-directional integration from the beginning. In the 80s, as these systems were being created, uh, a standard for interoperability was also generated called HL7. 
And HL7 is by far the most widely used integration standard out there right now. And it is bi-directional in the sense that data can update in the EHR with HL7, and the EHR also sends data out using HL7. And what I'm talking about here, for those of you who are familiar, is HL7 version 2. It's the That specific version of HL7 is what's widely used. Every single health system has it running. It's updating EHRs both bi-directionally. And it's where it's you, a piece of software. It's a code. Is it a language? It's what a language. It? Yeah. It is the Greek or the Latin that, that they are speaking. The language itself, like if you if you Google HL7, you'll find you know screenshots of what it looks like. And it's just numbers and letters and it's pipe delimited. So there'll be you know pipes that separate the data. So you'll have first name, pipe, last name, pipe, you know, date of birth. That's just the language that the computer speaks. One of the challenges though is that it was developed a long time ago and it is implemented locally at a health system. And what that means is that that local implementation of that language, it's like a dialect, right? If you think about how languages have evolved in in island nations, my, my parents are from the Philippines and every island in the Philippines has their own dialect of the language. And so my mom grew up speaking like seven dialects of, of Cebuano, uh, which is a, a dialect of, of languages spoken <laughs> in the Philippines itself. And that's how it's kind of evolved with, with languages in healthcare and that, you know, UCSF has different dialects of HL7 than does Kaiser, even though they're on the same, on the same peninsula there. So they've evolved to have these, these very different dialects that don't necessarily speak to each other, which gets us to the challenge of when you level up to that enterprise interoperability, how do you get data to flow between Kaiser and UCSF? First off, you have to answer the question of why should data flow between those two organizations? Um, which is which is much more of a business model and economics question, right? Because those are very different types of healthcare organizations. You know, Kaiser likes to keep their patients within the Kaiser ecosystem. So you might even say that they have a disincentive to allow data to flow to UCSF because if they want to go across the street and get a, a surgery from a surgeon at, at UCSF, Kaiser is potentially you know losing revenue from that. They're not controlling the experience like they like to do. And in the healthcare world, we call that leakage which is a, a, a very bad word for in healthcare sense in that their <laughs> patients are, are leaking out of their health system into other care settings. The more that data can flow freely, the more that patients can leak, they can leave those, those care settings. So you have to first answer the question of why does the economics make sense for the data to leave? Um, you know, I think every provider out there would, would say that they want the data to, to move because we want as much information as we can. But from a business standpoint, it is harder to justify. But even if we say, yeah, it makes sense for data to flow, maybe these two health systems um, and you know different examples here, but uh, they have a partnership where they, they share patients and they want the data to move between them. Now we have health system A using HL7, health system B using HL7, but those two versions of HL7 can't talk to each other. Also, HL7 was never designed to be transmitted over the internet. Mm -hmm. So you also have another problem with the protocols used. So it's difficult to, you know, you can't just put it in an email and send it off. Well, you could, but it, it, it wouldn't be functionally worth it. So you have that challenge. And so there was another standard developed. So we went from HL7 version two to version three, which eventually kind of morphed into CCDAs, which we don't have to really get into what these acronyms mm -hmm. mean, but it's just another, it's a document is what we call it that has a snapshot of what's going on with the patient. And this is this standard was designed for that enterprise interoperability. And so this is what's used primarily today to solve that problem. So if you think of, there's all these networks out there, health information exchanges, care quality, Commonwealth, direct trust. Um, these are all different frameworks that some are you know, nonprofits and they're industry conglomerations of different groups. 
that were designed to help these health systems share data. And the data that they're sharing is this new standard CCDA, a document that has a snapshot of, of what's going on, you know, wh- who the patient is, what their meds are, what their diagnoses, their history, their family history, their allergies, kind of all the things that you want to know about a patient in a snapshot that's, do- that's packaged up as a document which are sometimes, you know, literally if you printed this document, it could be hundreds of pages long because it's just a lot of data. And they'll, they'll send that out to one of these networks and then you can pull it down from a network back into your system. Um, and that's kind of how it's solved today is through these disparate networks that don't always talk to each other, which, you know, is another, is another bullseye for the regulatory environment because they're saying, hey, all these networks should talk to each other and all these networks should use the exact same standard. So that's where regulations are certainly moving is, is, the government actually saying because of the economic incentives that don't necessarily align for patients to share data, we are mandating that everybody has to join one of these networks and these networks have to talk to each other. And so that's some of the the new regulation that has come out, but it doesn't really have teeth behind it yet. So soon we'll start to see that. And I'm pretty confident under the Biden administration that those regulations will certainly move forward. Yeah, that's a lot. So, yes, sorry. But, but but HL7 was a way for data to be shared between computers and it bunched the data into boxes and the boxes were consistent so that the recipient, the receiving computer would know which box to look at for which data point. And that was easy enough, but it didn't really scale and didn't get to the internet. And so now we have these very complex data structures for any individual patient. And the way we're going to share that information is create these CCDAs, if I got that right. And it's like a, a love letter. It's got all the information you would ever want to know about this person. And when it's received on the other end, it's unpackaged and all the pieces get put into the right place, the name, the medical record number, the age, is that right? So that when I'm a physician accessing this EMR and this new patient arrives, their CCDA data, I'm not trying to open up a hundred page file, I'll find it exactly where I normally would, right? Ideally, that kind of depends on what's the system that you're using and how your healthcare organization and your IT team have really decided how to, how to display that CCDA information. One of the challenges here, and this gets into data governance, is if you pull an outside information into your electronic health record and it has information in it that that you missed because there's just a lot, or you know, maybe they're they're allergic to something, or essentially it increases your potential liability around that patient. But if you have no information, then you have no liability. You have to kind of discover it all on your own. So again, there's this, there's this incentive for them to potentially not bring in all of that information into the EHR. So as a healthcare organization, every health system has a data governance team that kind of looks at these questions and says, what information do we want to bring in? How do we want to display that to providers in a way that can be useful? And it doesn't become part of our, within a health system, they call it their legal medical record, the information that they have about a patient. And what a lot of health systems choose to do is say, yeah, we, we have found you know, three documents for this patient from the prior providers, and, but we're just going to display them on the side. We're not going to bring them into the legal medical record. We're going to display them. So as a provider, you can go peruse them. And this is where, you know, providers have to look through that potentially many, many hundreds of pages of documents around a patient, but they don't want to bring it in because there might be some, some liability there too. So it, it is a complex question that, you know, technically could be solved, but it is, uh, it is challenging because of some of the liabilities involved, which gets us into tort reform and, and a lot of the legal issues in, in healthcare as well. So interoperability is kind of intertwined in all of this. The the governance questions you brought up and the um, policy related issues that you brought up are really interesting because 
thing when people look at improperability, it's like, why, why isn't it so simple? Why isn't it just share my data and give it? And also why I think some people are looking to the patient to be the driver of that. Because if the patient brings you the data, obviously a lot of those med legal issues go away, right? If, and if I own the data and I give it to you and I can point out what I'm interested in you seeing, it definitely looks at like, So that's the personal health record concept that you mm -hmm. sort of alluded to at the beginning. So one thing I want to get into just real quick because it comes up, anybody who's playing around with interoperability or sharing data is going to come across this term, which is FIRE, and it's not spelled F-I-R-E, but it's a continuation of the HL7 discussion. So I wanted to finish that one out. So yeah. FIRE standards, what are they and how do they help? Yeah. So to recap, we had HL7 that was developed in the 80s. You know, it's evolved. And then in the 90s or so, 2000s, we, we started seeing the CCDs. Uh, get adopted. And, and then now, so we have, we have many standards, right? We have HL7 and all the dialects, we have CCDs, which can be implemented different ways. And so really a, a lot of smart people in our industry started thinking, well, how can we actually modernize this to make it work for the internet and make it work for modern technologies? You know, the same sort of technologies that Facebook and Google and Twitter are all built upon and how they share data and really modernize the security as well as the way that the, the data is shared. And that the obvious solution there is to create an API, which is an application programming interface. And that is sort of the communication mechanism that modern technologies use to talk to each other. So, you know, when you integrate your Twitter with Slack, so every tweet that you have pops up on Slack, that's using an API. And so it is a very standardized way that developers know how to, to use and interact with. But in order to use it, healthcare needed a new standard. It needed a new language to transmit over that API. And that's where Fire came from. And so the idea was, can we modernize the way that we represent a patient in computer language, which you know most APIs these days are, are written in JSON, which is a type of, of language. And, and Fire is really a specification of JSON that says, this is what a patient, uh, you know, all the patient information looks like. And their and the provider information and their insurance information, and so it is just a it's a new standard that is emerging and has recently been actually part of the regulation I was talking about earlier around patient authorized data exchange. So in the world of integration, which is kind of the oldest world of of interoperability, HL seven has you know staked its claim. That's that's the language that has been used and will likely will be used into the indefinite future. CCDs in the enterprise interoperability space. But in this patient authorized space, FHIR has been mandated to be the standard that everyone uses, that every electronic health record has to support. Every provider in the country has to have FHIR APIs stood up starting next year, actually. So pretty soon from now. And the main idea being that if I go to a doctor and that doctor has data about me in their medical records, I have the right as a patient to pull that data out now over a FHIR API into an application that I control. So the most popular application right now, if you have an iPhone, is, is Apple's HealthKit. So in the health app, if you open your iPhone and go to health, you can connect that app to your provider's medical records. It'll ask you like, where, where have you been seen? You can choose your, your doctor, and then you have to authenticate into it using, using your provider's portal. But once you do that, it pulls the data out using Fire into that application. And now it's on your phone. Now you have your med list on your phone that, from your doctor. And Apple's idea is, you know, that's kind of the backbone. Like that app isn't really great. It's just a list of information. It doesn't do much other than that, but it is the backbone for what other applications can be built upon. So it starts to create this ecosystem where developers can say, well, I, I can make an iOS app and use the HealthKit integrations to pull data into my application and actually do more with that with 
um, the application rather than just displaying it, they can you know do some analysis on it. So that's where that's where we're moving certainly, and that's really where Fire has made its has staked its claim. Um, it's Fire as a standard is starting to spill over into the other types of interoperability. However, one of the challenges is that standards are sticky. Once they're implemented, it is really hard to rip them out. That's why we still have fax machines. Like every doctor's office has a fax machine because at the end of the day, if you can't communicate, that's literally the the last line of defense is I'm going to throw it in the fax machine, (laughs) shoot it over there, right? Um, Yeah. So you can't actually rip it out. And and what's funny is, so we have the government uh, mandating that these new standards are adopted, but my, my colleague at Redox, Brendan, he was saying the government could actually go further and mandate that old standards have to stop being used. Like if we say HL7 V2 is going to be illegal starting in 2025, the industry will have to innovate so fast to figure out how to make fire work in all of those old use cases that HL7 V2 currently covers and really modernize the whole system. Um, and he, he actually found an example of this in the UK. They, may, they passed regulation that is banning the use of fax machines. So basically taking away that last old standard of a fax machine and saying, no, it has to do something at least a little better than analog way of transmitting data. So, so they're actually taking that approach of being a little more heavy handed in their regulation and saying, we're actually going to deprecate old technology. Because if you think about the evolution of fire, this new standard that everyone agrees is, is far better technologically, it is really hampered by these old standards still being in existence because the old standards still work. They're just not very good technologies. Um, and if they still work, what, like if it's, if it's not broken, why fix it? And that's this challenge that we face in, in ripping out old standards and putting in new standards. And there's also the fact that the people at your institution are familiar with HL7 and scared by fire. And I've seen that even within our own context, which is mm-hmm. like, well, if we do, and also there's costs associated with this. So HL7 is expensive. In terms of it's the, the coding, the, the matching all the variables, as far as I can tell, is not an easy thing to do. It just takes a little time. Fires a lot quicker, so it, it expedites the ability of connecting these apps to the healthcare system using APIs. And, they, and I use the word app specifically because we're all accustomed to expecting at some point that the apps that we download on our phone should be able to speak to my electronic health record and, and, and provide it with my step count and heart rate and what have you. But that's sort of, at this point in time, still a little science fiction-y. There's some healthcare systems, the ones especially the cloud-based, that have managed to make that, uh, they've created these, um, there's a place where they test these apps and then make them available. Orchards, they call them, yeah. So there's the Orchard where you can go and app, check your apps out, which is cool. It's definitely the beginning of use, of linking through interoperability the, my electronic health record to my data sets and also allow me to use information to my benefit. So that's awesome. Okay, last two minutes, 10 years from now, where are we going to be with interoperability, assuming that everything you've sort of hinted at is going to give us a picture of what it may look like if I go to the doctor's office. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to start with things that I, I'm pretty sure of, and then go into <laughs> things that, that are more hopeful. So what I'm pretty sure of is that we're going to see a ton of incremental progress in data sharing across health systems, meaning that if you show up to your provider, hopefully that provider has a much wider and broader picture of who you are as a patient. You know, even if you move to a new city and get a new doctor and walk in there, uh, that doctor, you know, should be able to pull up your medical records from your entire life's history, or at least your life's history until about, you know, 2022 or so. Um, so the last, you know, few years of it. And that's because we, we've seen a ton of progress with groups like Care Equality, groups like Commonwealth, new regulations like TEFCA, which is saying that all of these networks have to talk to each other and all health systems need to be connected to those networks. 
So we're, we're seeing the government actually drive that innovation, which is great because I don't think it would happen otherwise. So that's what I think is pretty sure we're going to see more interoperability in that sense. We're also going to see providers using technology that actually helps them be more efficient and effective. What's kind of sad is that over the past 10 or 15 years now, the healthcare industry was forced to adopt electronic health records. And it's the one industry where we saw a technological overhaul and it actually got less efficient, which is, which is mind-blowing. Like They went from paper on clipboards to computers and they got less efficient, meaning that they see fewer patients, spend less time with patients, do more manual data entry. Um, that needs to change. And I am certain that we're going to see that revolution over the next five or 10 years of providers actually getting technology that helps them rather than uh, forces them into you know, doing more manual data entry. So that's the whole digital digital health wave that we're seeing right now with tons and tons of investments from venture capital of new types of technologies that providers should be using and health systems should be using to actually make care delivery more efficient and more effective for patients. So I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Um, the third bucket that I'm not quite sure is going to happen, but I hope is that we're going to see patients much more engaged in healthcare because of these applications that patients can actually authorize. The, the apps on your phone, I have a whole folder on my phone of health apps. All of them are fitness sort of applications right now. And because I'm a cyclist, as I mentioned, I have Strava and I have Whoop and I have Wahoo and all these like these apps that are focused on you know niche fitness things, but that's going to spill over into the general, the wider, more, more general population that doesn't necessarily obsess about health like an athlete would, but is engaged in their health because it, it, it is such a big determinant to their, um, to their livelihood as a human being. And those applications don't exist yet, but they can exist starting next year with this new infrastructure that the government has mandated around these APIs that should get clinical data into those applications. The gap right now, the reason why all of the health apps and the marketplaces are all like fitnessy or, you know, expecting mother apps, right? Like these sorts of applications is because there's a gap between those applications and real clinical applications that are helping patients, you know, recover from a surgery or help patients deal with, with chronic conditions. There's a gap there because there's a data gap in getting data from providers who are guiding those sorts of behaviors into the hands of patients. And so I am hopeful that this new infrastructure that is being mandated will actually help to close that gap and bring more of these applications, uh, these consumer-oriented applications to the wider masses of, of patients in our population who can actually benefit from them. So that is the underlying infrastructure that's required to drive this consumerization of healthcare, which I hope happens, but it is not, as, not nearly as certain as simply the incremental improvements that I described earlier around helping providers be more efficient and effective with uh, more data. Mika, I couldn't agree more. That vision is really compelling. I um, I moved from a system at Kaiser Permanente where I knew everything about the patient walked in the door. I could go back any number of years and to uh, the university, which is great, but we had people coming from all over the state. And frankly, there are folks I had no I, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what, what information to access. And it was a very hard shift back to almost like a generational shift backwards. It's a back to the future kind of experience. is really bizarre. And uh, the amount of work my staff has to do to collect that information prior to visit is really remarkable. Yeah. With the work you're doing around enabling that interoperability is really uh, awesome. It's uh, something that we're all benefiting from. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for starting Redox. Uh, for those of you out there who don't know what Redox is, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell them a little bit about that. And this is going to be a long podcast, but I think it was very useful because it's such a big, big topic to address. 
But if I'm a system that needs to implement an interoperability solution, I could be a small practice that needs to integrate into a, a hospital system that just bought us. What advice do you have for us about how to look at this interoperability platform? Should I insist on HL7 or should I insist on fire standards? Should I, should I take a stance on these things? Is there anything else I should think about? Um, or just let the tech people do it? <laughs> so there's certainly an element of let the tech people do it because they're going to know what standards make sense. So I don't think you have to go down that rabbit hole of choosing the technology. But I think as a, as a provider or as someone you know managing, managing a clinic or, or working within the administration of a health system, you have to demand from your technology providers that this works. And so you don't have to say how, but you have to say what. I need data to go from A to B for these reasons. You guys figure it out. And, and they're going to use the standard that makes the most sense to them. But the reason why that's so important is the demands that come from the administration of a healthcare organization are really important to these technology vendors, to electronic health record vendors, to, to digital health vendors, because you are ultimately the customer and you can walk away if, if, you, if you're not getting what you want. And so I think demanding interoperability and, and not taking no for an answer, because we know technically it can work. They can figure it out. They can use Redox. They can use other solutions to figure out how to make those systems talk to each other. But basically not taking no for an answer and saying this needs to happen. And if not, switching to different systems, especially if you're, if you're a, in a smaller practice, you need to be able to choose the technology that's going to make you the most efficient and demand that from your technology vendors. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the complexities of interoperability, all the standards that are used, the ways that they can be used in different use cases. Simply put, what Redox does is, is can make that consistent for a software developer. So our users are software developers who make these apps and we have an API that they plug into. And once they do that, then wherever they're, they're working, whether it's a big hospital using Meditech or a small clinic using Athena or an academic medical center using Epic, it all looks the same to them. So we're simply this middle layer, uh, this Rosetta stone in the middle that, that standardizes all of the data and makes a central point to connect to. So it's, it's really a network in the middle there. But yeah, it's, uh, it, we're trying to just make it so not everyone has to get a PhD in interoperability to understand how to work within healthcare because it's a big barrier to entry for new innovations and new technologists that are trying to make products in the space. Awesome. We start out by defining interoperability, the challenges we have between data sharing, where that came from, how it started, and how we developed into these agreements that the way data is shared between computers, between software, should have a specific path so that it's clear and understood on both ends and that these have evolved to include these new standards. FHIR. And so now we have this new language, it's just even more powerful, it allows us to connect these. But then you brought up this incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking challenge that, you know, the incentives sometimes actually are against interoperability to the extent that we actually had to have the government step in and create regulations so that people could access their own data and make sure the data could be accessed. And that these regulations are still working their way through the system in a way that don't have that much teeth behind them, but that those are coming and you see a future pretty soon where we'll be able to walk into any physician's office and expect our data to be there. The MRI that I obtained doesn't have to be repeated. The x-rays don't have to be duplicated. The, my allergy list is there and my family history is available so that the clinician that I'm now seeing can make the best possible decision. And that's a really fantastic future that we're looking forward to because I think most people have had that experience and it's very frustrating to have to figure out how to shift data back and forth. Yep. That's a, that's a world that I want to live in. And so that's, uh, that's our motivation every day to, to try to help us take a couple steps closer to it. Fantastic. 
I want to thank you for being part of this conversation. And we may call you back, maybe make you faculty for Digital Health 101 courses, you know, <laughs> so, because we could talk at length about a number of these issues. And I think yep. this, many of them will merit it. So again, thanks, Nico, for taking time with us today. It's been just an extraordinary pleasure. I know I learned a lot and I hope our audience will too. Yeah, my pleasure. Super excited to listen to the rest of the Digital Health 101 series as well. Thanks for putting these on. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you liked what you heard, follow us on Twitter at dhealthtoday, that's dhealthtoday altogether. And follow the Digital Orthopedics Conference I chair at the DocSF. That's at the D-O-C-S-F. See you on the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. Yeah. Hey, congrats on your last round. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're we're pumped. It, it happened a year faster than we thought it would. Just because 2020 ended up, you know, we, we started doing a electronic lab reporting for COVID test companies. And so we process about 10% of COVID tests in the country every single day, going from our system into uh, public health agencies to report on, you know, positivity rates and things like that. So that really held our business up in 2020. And yeah, we were able to use that momentum to, to raise a big round, which was great. Thank you.